life, there are those who try to exalt themselves rather than seeing Christ exalted. You've got a rather ugly picture in your outlines of the little horn of Daniel. And I'm not going to actually give an exposition of Daniel, but I do want to read it uh, as background material. So Daniel chapter 7, beginning to read at verse 7, and then we will read from the uh, bulletin, page 21, for Revelation. Daniel 7, beginning to read at verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns. There was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And I believe this was Titus who plucked out. It was precisely Titus who fought against and uh, plucked out Galba, Otho, and Vitellius um, and uh, put his father on the throne. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Now if you would turn to your bulletins, page 21, Revelation 13, 1 through 10. Actually, I'm just going to begin reading at verse 5. And he was given a mouth speaking great things, that is, blasphemy. And he was given authority to make war 42 months. So he opened the mouth of his in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given him over every tribe and language and ethnic nation. All who dwell on the earth will do obeisance to him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone has captivity, he goes away. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the endurance and the faith of the saints. Amen. Father, as we dig into your word, I pray that you would keep me from error, enable me to clearly articulate what you have laid upon my heart, and I pray that this, your people, would be edified, encouraged, uh, with faith and endurance to face whatever it is that uh, the future might hold. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today I plan to fly through the remainder of verses 5 uh, through 10, but I do want to spend about three minutes in review and uh, then five to eight minutes in dealing with two new issues that I think need to be addressed if we're going to uh, make sense of the passage. In verse 1, John was standing on the seashore of, of Israel 
uh, looking out toward Rome, and he sees this beast coming up out of the sea onto the beach of Israel and attacking Israel. And we saw that the beast is sometimes the demon who controls the empire, but we see elsewhere in the book of Revelation that sometimes the beast is the empire itself or the emperor that is controlled by that demon. And uh, commentators of all stripes have noted that there is this fluctuation between referring to the beast corporate, that would be the empire, and the beast individual, that would be an individual emperor. And they go back and forth, and that's very common knowledge uh, amongst commentators. Then we saw that the seven heads of the beast were symbolic of the first seven Caesars of the empire, starting with Julius Caesar and all the way up through to Vespasian. And since a head you know, represents an emperor. You can see why the emperor would be called the beast. He's the one leading the empire, right? He's the one that the demon is working through. So you can see why in book of Revelation it's going to go back and forth between the two. It makes total sense. The ten horns were ten demons who were the true power behind the, uh, the empire, but they were the ones who also were behind uh, the various uh, emperors and so you'll see this back and forth. Sometimes there was one, sometimes there were two uh, demons behind an emperor. In the case of Nero, there were two main demons behind him. Um, and in terms of symbolism, we saw that the leopard's body uh, represents the cruelty and the bloodthirstiness of Rome. The bear claws represented the power and might. That's how they ruled, power and might, rather than through true authority. The lion's mouth represents the, the way that statism tends to devour the productivity of its citizens, and there's that roar, that threat of violence uh, for those who do not to back it up. Verse 3 then predicted the death of the empire with the death of Nero. And so the first part of verse 3, this is an anchor point that's very helpful. First part of verse 3 is uh, June, I think it's June 9 of AD uh, 68. The revival of the beast in the second half of verse 3 is uh, a representation of when Vespasian is able to pull the empire back together again in mid-69, AD 69. Now, based on chapter 17, um, how did that happen? Well, it happened because God once again released the demon beast out of the abyss and it came and it possessed Vespasian and then Titus. So demon, emperor, and empire are all revived in mid-69 AD. And Israel, who refused to worship Jesus but instead said, we have no lord but Caesar or king but Caesar, was forced at the point of the sword to worship Caesar in verse 4. And that's as far as we got last week. But verses 5 through 9, excuse me, 5 through 10, and now explain events from mid AD 69 and on. And there are a couple of things that might be puzzling if you do not read this in light of chapter 17. And I want to spend just a few minutes addressing those puzzles. Now, the first puzzle is that the beast is residing in the city of Rome in verse 2. He's on his throne in verse 2. Where's the throne of Rome? It's in the city of Rome. And yet in uh, verses 3 through 8, the beast seems to be personally present in Israel, fighting against Israel, uttering blasphemies against God and against the temple. And authority seems to be given to the beast 
while he is in Israel. So uh, how can that be? How can the beast be both on the throne in Rome and fighting in Israel? Now Revelation 17, 10 through 11 explains it, that the beast that was and is not is also the eighth, yet he is of the seven, and he is going into perdition. What in the world does that mean? Well, Vespasian and Titus were both declared to be Caesar at the same time. Vespasian is the seventh head, and chapter 17 says he continues to exist as a head even while the eighth emperor, which is his son Titus, is also ruling. Even while Titus is also ruling. Revelation 17 uses the word uh, also for Titus. Now later we're going to be seeing that the demon beast will perform some of the same miracles in Titus that it had performed in Vespasian to consolidate his rule. And uh, we've already seen that the beast apparently wanted to get in on the action of the war against Israel and against uh, the Christians that were there. And so once Vespasian was safely on his throne, he travels to Israel and uh, possessed Titus. And with that possession, Titus started acting very strange, living out some of the things that you see in um, uh, this chapter and in chapter 17. So today's message is going to answer some conundrums that you will see preterists face in this passage. And there's another puzzle related to dates. I had earlier said that the demon was um, bound in AD 70. I still believe that. Uh, this is based on a straightforward reading of Revelation uh, chapter 17, verse 11. But there is a, an apparent problem with that in chapter 13, verse 5, which says, and he was given a mouth speaking great things, that is blasphemy, here comes the problem, and he was given authority to make war 42 months. So a straightforward reading of this chapter shows that the 42 months happens after verses 3 and 4, right? So chronologically, it has to be referring to the second half, the 42 months that comes after AD 70. But if that's the case, I think you immediately recognize there's a problem with that. If the beast is bound in AD 70, how can he be given authority to be warring for another 42 months in the next following verses? So the straightforward reading of uh, chapter 17 and 19 is that the beast is bound in AD 70. The straightforward reading of this text is he's given, right around 69 or 70, he's given authority to war another 42 months. So how do you reconcile those two? The solution some people have given is to disagree with me and say that the 42 months refers to the first half of the war, the, the, the war from 67 to 70, but that completely messes up the chronological flow of verses 1 through 10. Remember we saw last week that verse 3, first half, is Nero's death. Second half, Vespasian's bringing the empire back together again in 69, and it's at that precise time that the personalities of both Vespasian and Titus changes, just radically changes. They start prophesying. They start doing amazing miracles, like they heal cripples. And this is documented by different historians, and they heal blind people who have been blind all their lives. How in the world did Vespasian and Titus manage to do that? This is the time that the beast possesses those two. 
So we saw last week that the 42 months of verse 5 must refer to the second half of the war. This, it would be easy to just say, okay, he's going backwards and there's no chronological order here, but I don't think that that is a good uh, way out. You can't get out of the conundrum by mixing the order. There is a chronological flow. Now, as I see it, there are four reasonable solutions to this apparent problem. And the first is mine. It's the simplest one. Um, what's the rule? Uh, Occam's razor. I don't know if that, that applies in exegesis, but it is simplest. Many have pointed out that the, the term beast moves fluidly in the book of Revelation between the demon, the emperor, and the empire. Right? And the only reason in verse 3 that the empire ceased to exist, it died, is because there was no demon. The demon had been bound in the pit. There was no emperor because Rome had fallen apart. And there was no empire. Okay, So all three manifestations of the beast had disappeared. Well, that's not the case here in uh, AD uh, 70. Um, in AD 70, the, the demon is once again bound in AD 70, on my theory, uh, but the empire beast and the emperor beast continue to be around. And by the way, there were plenty of other demons to continue to um, uh, mess around with, with Titus. So this is the one that makes the most sense uh, to me. Titus is authorized to make war for another 42 months. A second solution that's been proposed is given by Duncan Mackenzie. And Mackenzie's view is that, that there are actually eight demon beasts standing behind the first eight emperors. So he sees the heads as being both a demon and being a human ruler. I see it as just being the human uh, ruler and the, the crowns as being the demon behind them as well as the master beast being over everything. But hey, that would completely solve this dilemma because then you just got another beast that's possessing uh, Titus at that point. And so that is one possible solution. I don't agree with it because I think there are some exegetical issues with it. The third possible solution is to say that the demon was bound in the pit in AD 74, not in AD 70. And that could be possible read of chapters 17 and 19. I don't think it's the most likely read, but that solution would completely resolve the apparent contradiction. I've got my exegetical reasons for not following that, but I admit, okay, that's a possible solution. The fourth possible solution is to say that the binding of the beast that Revelation 19 refers to is still future and the thousand years is still future. I used to hold to that, at least tentatively I used to hold to that. Um, and it's still a possible solution. There are indicators in chapter 19 of progress over time, but there are some reasons why I doubt that interpretation. Now some of you could care less about the details we're going through here, and some of you are going to take this information and you're going to run with it, and you're going to do research and say, Phil, here's the reasons I think this theory really uh, stands up rather than your theory. That's great. Uh, you, can, you can run with that. But here's the bottom line of why I even bring up those four contradictions. There are a lot of people out there who try to vilify the Scripture. And there is no contradiction, no provable contradiction, if there are four plausible explanations of this. And I think all four of these are, are quite plausible. Now, I tentatively hold that the beast as demon gets bound in AD 70. I think it's the most natural reading of chapter 19. And that in turn explains why Titus was not able to perform miracles after AD 70. 
So you got, you got to interpret history through the eyes of Scripture. And there's got to be a reason why he couldn't do those miracles anymore. But he continues to represent the beast of Rome and is himself the little horn of Daniel and thus corresponds perfectly to both Daniel's and Revelation's major preoccupation. Now, whichever of those four interpretations you want to take, what I'm saying is all of the evidence points to this being fulfilled in Titus, Caesar Titus. Titus was the real uh, power behind the throne. So with that as a background, let's, let's pick up where we left off and let's look at four things that the beast uh, as Titus is given. Verse 5 says, And he was given a mouth speaking great things, that is, blasphemy. Now the Greek of the first clause is identical to the Septuagintal Greek of the translation of Daniel chapter 7, verse 8, where Titus, the little horn, is said to have a mouth speaking great things as what some translations have, or speaking pompous things as the way the New King James has it. So this is, an, this is basically giving an interpretation, an inspired interpretation of Daniel 7, 8. He says, what are those pompous things? What are those great things that he's speaking? Blasphemy. So what is the blasphemy in this passage? Verse 6 expands on that blasphemy a bit more. So see, he opened that mouth of his in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, those who dwell in heaven. And then there's one more action of blasphemy that Titus required of all the Jews, basically of everybody in the entire empire. When he, because of the Civil War, they went to extra measures to enforce loyalty to Caesar. So verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will do obeisance to him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. So the question comes, did this kind of blasphemy really occur? Okay, was Titus really that bad? Did he require people to worship him? Some people doubt that. But uh, my research shows that Titus continued the blasphemy of previous emperors, and more to the point, Titus was the only emperor the only Caesar who was ever directly worshipped in the temple. He was the only emperor who ever blasphemed inside the temple. He was the only Caesar to even be inside that temple, the holy place of that temple. So consistent with verses 5 through 6, the Talmud calls him the wicked Titus who blasphemed and insulted heaven. Now let me read you the whole quote. It's rather interesting. It says, Vespasian sent Titus, who mocked, Where are their gods, the rock in whom they sought refuge? This was the wicked Titus who blasphemed and insulted heaven. What did he do? He entered the Holy of Holies and with his sword slashed the curtain. Through a miracle, blood spurted forth, and he thought he had killed God himself. He brought two harlots and, spreading out a scroll beneath them, transgressed with them on top of the altar. He began to speak blasphemies and insults against heaven, boasting, one who wars against a king in a desert and defeats him cannot be compared to one who wars against a king in his own palace and conquers him. In saying this, he was declaring himself to be more powerful than Jehovah and that he had conquered and killed Jehovah. But his actions on top of the altar, on top of that spread out Bible scroll, are also a very deliberate attempt to blaspheme God and basically defy God, dare God. I just dare you. Fight me. Come out. If you really exist, come out. I, I'm above you. I'm stronger than you. That's what he was in effect doing. 
As 2 Thessalonians describes the man of sin, Titus opposed and exalted himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sat as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 4. Did Titus call himself God? Most definitely he called himself God. You can see it on his coins, just like all the previous uh, emperors did. And a very early Jewish rabbi, Rabbi Nathan, possibly from the first century, it's what it's purported to be from, second century, I'm sorry, said of this entry into the Holy of Holies, what is more, he dragged a prostitute into the Holy of Holies and he began to blaspheme, curse, vilify, and spit toward him on high, saying, so this is the one who you say slaughtered Sisera and Sennacherib. Here I am in his house and in his domain. If he has any power, let him come out and face me. So he's daring God to a fight. The same rabbi said that when he took shiploads of prisoners to Rome for the triumphal entry, that, quote, a gale arose to drown him in the sea. He stood on the deck of the ship and began to blaspheme, curse, vilify, and spit toward him on high. He said, when I was in his house and in his domain, he did not have the power to come and face me. But now here he is. He's come forth to meet me. It seems that the God of the Jews has power only where there is water. So it was mockery and disdain for God, another example of how he exalted himself above God. Now when we look at the miracles he performed later in the book, we're going to see that those miracles were to try to induce worship of him and of his father as a Caesar. But when people refused to worship Titus, he had them tortured. Okay, Even Josephus, who by the way, you got to read Josephus with a little bit of a jaundiced eye because he was paid for by the Romans. He doesn't dare speak against them too much, but he has some veiled things that you find here and there that show, okay, <laughs> I'm friends with Titus, I'm dependent upon him and everything, but he shows that he really did some of this stuff. So um, what, what um, Josephus talks about is uh, an event in AD 74, right toward the end of the war, the Jewish leaders captured 600 Jews who refused to worship Caesar, and they handed them over to Titus to show, look, we are in total subjection to you. So they were wanting to show their loyalty by handing over Jews who wouldn't worship uh, Caesar. The 600 refused to worship Caesar, and Josephus describes what happened then subjected to every form of torture and bodily suffering that could be thought of for the one purpose of making them acknowledge Caesar as Lord, not a man gave in or came near to saying it, but rising above the strongest compulsion, they all maintained their resolve, and it seemed as if their bodies felt no pain and their souls were almost exultant as they met the torture and the flames. But nothing amazed the spectators as much as the behavior of young children, for not one of them could be constrained to call Caesar Lord. So even Josephus admits that Titus was an incredible tyrant. For a Jew to call Caesar Lord was tantamount to calling Caesar God because the Jews used the term Lord as a substitute for Jehovah, you know, his name. Now, I've often wondered, as I've read that account in Josephus, if those Jews were really... Christians, if they were Jewish Christians that had been uh, captured. Uh, but notice from 
that quote that both older people and children were compelled to worship, which parallels Revelation 13, verse 16, which says that this emperor worship was forced, quote, on everyone, both small and great. So the small would be the children, the great would be uh, the non-children, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave. And just to summarize, the evidence is so strong for Titus being the identification that even an idealist, remember idealists were people who don't see a historical sequence in the book or at all, it's just principles that are being taught. An idealist like G.K. Beale, who by the way has a fabulous commentary from an idealist perspective, even he admits that the evidence seems to perfectly fit Titus, perfectly. No other Caesar, no other candidate that we know of actually sat in the temple and declared himself to be God in that temple, blasphemed God in the temple, as 2 Thessalonians 2 requires. Nero didn't do it. Caligula tried, but he couldn't do it. Titus is the only one that fits. The second thing Titus was given was authority to war an additional 42 months. So verse 5, as I've mentioned earlier, is not jumping back to AD 67. There is, this is something new that he is being given. He's given authority after the death of Nero, verse 3a, after the empire has been brought back together under Vespasian and under uh, himself in verse 3b. So it's after it, that at the very minimum, it has to be after mid AD 69. And the whole war lasted from when? From 67 to 74. So I agree with uh, church fathers, early church fathers like Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Eusebius, Ambrosiaster, uh, who said that this seven-year war was the 70th week of Daniel. Now I know there's lots of controversy. We've already dealt with the 70 weeks of Daniel. But even if you believe the 70th week of Daniel has to end in AD 33, which is the take some people give, you still have to deal with a seven-year war that's called a week in Daniel 9, verse 27. So either that's an additional week to the 70 weeks, 71, or it is the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, But uh, I think uh, until preterists take seriously the fact that the war was seven years long, and all historians agree it was seven years long, uh, they're not going to convince a lot of people to, to buy into their viewpoint. But in any case, the meaning of verse 5 is that once Titus finished burning the temple, conquering Jerusalem, he was called upon to finish securing the land of Israel and to fight against all Jewish resistance wherever it may be found for the next 42 months, which is precisely what Titus did. It all fits perfectly. Third thing Titus was given was authority to uh, resume persecution of Christians. Verse 7 says, And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to conquer them. Now many preterists who end their timeline in AD 70 cannot apply this to Christians, and the reason they can't apply it to Christians is they already know that chapter 12 says Christians in Israel were going to be preserved from that persecution for the three and a half years. Uh, They're not going to, to face it, so it would contradict that. And so what they do is they say, well, it can't be Christians. So in the Old Testament, Jews were referred to as saints. So this is referring to the war against the Jews. No. Nowhere in the book of Revelation is the word saints ever used of unbelieving Jews. They're called fake Jews. They're called uh, a synagogue of Satan. This has to refer to true Christians, true believers. It's one of the many weak points in full preterism. 
and it can't apply to the broader Roman Empire in the first half of the war because remember we saw with Nero's death, persecution ceased. So this is, this is something that goes on for the, the, next, uh, uh, the next 42 months. So it doesn't fit the first half, whether you're talking about Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians. The resumption of persecution of Christians began in AD 70, and the quote that I gave earlier about these Jews being tortured, possibly it was even Christian Jews, uh, happened in AD 74, right toward the end of that, that period of war. But it's an indicator of how Titus approached this whole subject. There would be periods of persecution off and on again under Titus, his brother Domitian, several other empire, emperors. But after AD 74, never again would that there be a triumph over Christianity. Now, some people object and they claim there's no evidence that Titus ever persecuted Christians. Uh, I say, no, there's tons of evidence. I'm just going to give you one quote for now. We're going to get into this later, uh, but one quote. The early church historian Sulpicius Severus, who lived from AD 363 to 425, he had boatloads of original documents, and he cites a, a council that Titus had that we don't find in Josephus, so uh, he, he's, a, he's the only source for this council, but he cites a council where uh, all of the generals were gathered together and they're determining this is a magnificent temple. Do we burn it down? Do we destroy it or do we not destroy it? Many of the generals were saying, you cannot destroy that because it's going gonna, it's gonna to come back against us. It's going to make us look like we're more brutal than we uh, you know, want to appear. But anyway, Severus says this. Others, however, including Titus himself, opposed this view and said that the destruction of the temple was a prime necessity in order to wipe out more completely the religion of the Jews and the Christians. Now, notice this reference. Titus was committed to wiping out the Jews in Jerusalem and the Christians. The quote goes on. For they urged that these religions, although hostile to each other, nevertheless sprang from the same sources. The Christians had grown out of the Jews, so if the root were destroyed, the stock would easily perish. So yes, uh, Titus was indeed involved in destroying Christianity, uh, just as committed to that as he was to destroying Jerusalem. And this decision to destroy Christians was made just before just before the second half of the war, just before that 42-month period. Now, the fourth thing Titus was given was the authority to rule over a restored empire. Verse 7 goes on to say, an authority was given to him over every tribe and language and ethnic nation. Now, if you've not read much of history, that might be a little bit of a puzzle to you because, wait a minute, Vespasian's the one who's got all authority over the empire, and he rules from 69 A.D. to 79 A.D., and uh, Titus only rules from 79 to 81 as sole emperor. But the more you read of history, the more remarkable the details of revelation and the details of history dovetailing become. Here was the way things turned out. According to the Roman historians Tacitus and Suetonius, from mid-80-69 to early 70, both Titus and his father Vespasian were given demonic power to do amazing miracles, as I mentioned, healing cripples, healing the blind. Uh, the Roman historian Tacitus records that, quote, many miracles occurred through Vespasian. Now, we'll look at those miracles another time. 
later in the book, but the Romans considered this grounds to make both Vespasian and Titus gods. Had to be a god if you're a Caesar, right? They're both gods. Both were declared Caesar at the same time. And actually, some historians believe that Titus was the one all the way through who was ruling through his father, Vespasian. And he was the brilliant networker. He was the behind-the-scenes strings puller who controlled key people all throughout the empire. And it was easier for him to push the limits of consolidation with his dad on the throne than with himself on the throne because depending on how things went, he could put the blame there or he could take the credit for it. But um, many have pointed to Titus's incredible power. It's one of the reasons why Titus boldly sat on his father's throne when he came back to, Israel, uh, back to Rome in AD 71. And Titus had already, by the way, been issuing decrees. We've got copies of his decrees in the name, uh, his own name as Caesar. He's been issuing these decrees as Caesar during the war. According to Suetonius, numerous pagan prophecies declared that Titus was the resurrected Nero. Now, if they're prophesying by demonic power, they're going to know that the beast has left Nero, was in the pit, has come up, and he's now gone into, into Titus. So it makes perfect sense that they're going to prophesy that he is Nero. The same beast that was in Nero is now in, in Titus. And that may be the reason, oh, by the way, in Revelation uh, 17, uh, dated in 69, it's, it talks about the beast being about to come up out of the pit. I can't get into all of these trails, but every little detail of Revelation has to fit together hand in glove. And it may be the reason why the moment Vespasian came to power, get a load of this interesting fact, the moment Vespasian came to power, the head of the huge statue of Nero, the previous emperor, Nero in Olympus, was replaced with the head of Titus, not Vespasian. Okay? Why would you replace the head of the previous emperor with Titus's head? Well, the evidence seems to show that without Titus, Vespasian would have been nothing. He was a puppet emperor. Interestingly, Vespasian was only able to perform miracles in the presence of Titus and together with Titus. I don't recall a single miracle that he performed outside of Titus's presence, and as soon as Titus left Vespasian's presence and went to fight in Israel, the miracles followed with Titus. Vespasian couldn't do anymore. Titus was able to, and um, it appears that uh, the demon was at work only when Titus was present, and it seems that Titus's miracles immediately dried up once the burning of the temple happened, remember we saw that dating of all of the 1335, all of those dates, the moment the temple was, uh, was burned, that's when the demon was bound, and that's when he stopped being able to do uh, any, any miracles. There were plenty of other, other demons to demonize him, but not the beast. Now, historians point out that between AD 71 and 79, when Vespasian died, much of Vespasian's life is a silent mystery. They have no idea why. Well, this explains why. You know, they say it's almost as if Vespasian was doing nothing. What's going on between 71 and 79? Well, while Vespasian fell into sensual self-absorption, Titus had the true power over the empire. So both in name and in reality, Titus was emperor. At least he had the authority over the entire empire from 69 and on. He was the one 
who was in charge. Or as chapter 17 words it, the seventh head must continue for a short time, namely the time that Titus is fighting. But very quickly, Titus would return, and verse 11 calls him the eighth emperor who was also of the seven. In other words, the eighth was part of the seven because he's doing the work through the seventh. Does that make sense? Through his dad. So it makes me stand in awe when I see how history, just perfectly down to the word, down to the tiny details of Revelation, meshes. Now, how extensive was Titus's authority? Historian Barbara Levick noted that, quote, Musianus had secured all the Syrian cities by 15 July of AD 69 and all the provinces of Asia Minor. According to Josephus, all the cities were holding festivals in Vespasian's honor and offering sacrifices on his behalf. Some sent crowns and congratulatory decrees. Now, based upon the decrees of Titus as Caesar, it appears that Titus was calling the shots from the get-go, and by the end of the war, all of the former Roman Empire, including Israel, had declared formal allegiance to him and to his father. Uh, the declarations of allegiance were always to both Titus and to his father. Vespasian, by the way, they both had exactly the same name. It's uh, Titus Flavius Vespasianus, uh, which adds up to 666. I'll demonstrate that in another sermon. Now, verse 8 says, All who dwell on the earth will do obeisance to him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. Because of the civil war, because of the divided loyalties and the crisis of the moment, Titus had to enforce, at least from his perspective, had to enforce emperor worship in every city throughout the empire. He wanted to make sure there was total allegiance. This is the first time that it was enforced to such a degree. Now, I've already read to you the account of 600 Jews as just one example. We have such sparse history. You know, it's hard to piece a lot of these things together. But that was an example in Israel where you do it or you get tortured and die. You know, you submit. By the end of the war, submission was total. But actually, this was happening everywhere. Josephus records festivities of all the cities doing obeisance to an image of Caesar, but it's not until recently that we have found a document that shows exactly how this went on, and actually it's kind of a, a destroyed fragment. It's a papyrus, but they've been able to piece, to, you know, it's got holes in it. They've been able to piece together the parts of it to such a degree that I'm going to give you the summary of how this event went on. This took place on July 1 of AD 69 and was the pledge of allegiance of the whole population in Egypt to Vespasian and to Titus, to both of them. The legions had already taken their, apparently, their Pledge of Allegiance, but now they're coming in as the enforcers on the population. And so, crowd by crowd, these crowds are being herded into the Hippodrome of Alexandria. In a speech, the governor addressed his Lord Caesar, prayed for his health and preservation, described him in the traditional language of one Savior and benefactor. Of course, we as Christians know there is only one Savior. It's Jesus Christ, right? But the crowds were made to acknowledge one Savior and benefactor, namely Caesar. Then there are words uh, speaking of an imperial edict, quote, rising like the sun to shine upon mankind. Then there are just scraps of words that they piece together from this document uh, that go like this. Preserve, us, uh, pre preserve for us our emperor, O Augustus, Benefactor Serapis, son of Ammon. Ammon was an Egyptian deity. Uh, the crowd appears to reply on cue with a thanks to the emperor. 
And then the governor says, the divine Caesar prays for your well-being. I mean, you can see the divine Caesar, the whole ceremony is designed to get people to acknowledge he's God, he's your Lord, are you willing to accept that fact? The crowd then declares, O Lord Augustus, which means worthy of worship, O Lord Augustus Vespasianus. Now, you can see why that kind of pressure is going to put you in deep trouble as a Christian. In chapters 2 through 3, we saw that the churches throughout Asia Minor were about to face incredibly fierce uh, pressure. Some of them just for a short time, uh, some of them for longer. But all of the evidence seems to indicate if Christians were not willing to submit to Titus Flavius Vespasianus, that's the name that both of them shared, it could have resulted in persecution or even death. And in AD 69, the legions returned from Israel to put Vespasian on the throne to fight their way through any opposition, but to enforce allegiance in precisely those cities of Asia. That's where persecution definitely happened. In Israel, it guaranteed death to fail to do so. Even slaves would have had to have taken the oath or died. Now, with that as a background, you can understand the need for the solemn warnings of this passage. It would have been so, so easy for Christians to compromise if they were not prepared in heart. The pressures, I think, would have been enormous. So verse 8 implies that true Christians will not, or at least must not, bow down and call Titus Lord. It says, all who dwell on the earth will do obeisance to him, that is, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. So the implication is, if you've done obeisance to the beast, wow, it's really in doubt whether you are in that book, whether you are the elect. Now, there's no guarantee that you're not part of the elect, but that's the thing that the non-elect would do. At a minimum, we can surmise that true believers must not bow down to the beast or declare him Lord. When there is a conflict between the state and Christ, you've got to pick Christ. So just this past week, I got a notice that in, they passed a law in China that um, uh, uh, no churches are allowed to bring any children into their worship services. From now on, all children are banned. Even if they're accompanied by a parent, you cannot bring. Now, there is a clear-cut choice between Christ and his commands and Caesar and his commands. Now, you have to be wise in how you do that because Scripture doesn't mandate you have to come to a church building like this. You could break up into smaller groups. You could be wise in how you do it. But when it comes down, push to shove, command between Christ and Caesar, you must, you must disobey Caesar. There is no option for the Christian. Absolutely no option. So, the fact that this is obeisance, just bowing down. You know, you could say, well, I'm going to bow down, but I'm not going to really worship. The fact that he doesn't say worship, that he just says the obeisance is the literal there. It makes you wonder if we need to do self-examination. Are there any ways that we do obeisance that's inappropriate? Now, verse 9 gives another solemn admonition. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. Now, the way the Scripture uses that, he's not talking about physical ears. He's talking about spiritual ears. But it's possible to have spiritual ears. In other words, it's possible to be regenerate and still not be carefully following God's admonitions. So this admonition is basically saying, hey, we're going to be facing tough times, guys, and you've got to pay attention because you, if you're not on guard, you're going to slip, you're going to fall. So he who has ears, you've got to pay attention to the words of this book. Next, 
Verse 10 gives a solemn warning that the Jewish population is about to be punished in two ways. If anyone has captivity, he goes away. If anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Uh, there's debate on exactly what those words mean. Anytime there's debate, I just go back to the Old Testament background and say, okay, were there any times back then when these words are used? And there is. And um, you can find almost identical language in Jeremiah 15 and again in chapter uh, 43. Now I'm going to read Jeremiah 15 beginning at verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight. Let them go forth. And it shall be if they say to you, Where should we go? Then you shall tell them, Thus says the Lord. Such as are for death to death, such as are for the sword to sword, such as are for the famine to the famine, such as are for the captivity to the captivity. For who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem, or who will bemoan you, or who will turn aside to ask you uh, how you are doing? You have forsaken me, says the Lord. You have gone backward. Therefore, I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am weary of relenting. And Jeremiah 43 says much the same. Uh, says those appointed to captivity to captivity, those appointed to the sword to death. Now this is an explicit, this is, for those of you who are this law versus non-law uh, debates, you know, this is explicit support of the lex talionis principle of the Old Testament. Lex talionis means an eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. In other words, it needs to be proportional to the crime that's given. So God's definition of justice has never changed. This is what he's saying. His civil definition of justice has never changed. And when civil governments are not willing to follow through on justice, what does God do? He says, I'm going to do it. So uh, Jews uh, here, the, it says, if anyone kills with a sword, with a sword he must be killed. Jews had started the persecution of Christians, and countless Christians have been put to death as a result of that. So God is sorting through the Jews, which ones are innocent, which ones are not, which ones uh, should be worthy of punishment of captivity, which ones should be worthy of the captivity, uh, 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 the punishment uh, of death. So it's a solemn warning. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And then the last solemn warning was, here is the endurance and the faith of the saints. Dennis Johnson says, the here is formula in Revelation identifies the response that is called for by the truth that precedes it. As if John were saying, what is needed in this situation is dot, dot, dot. Okay? So this book has given wonderful promises to the church, and it's going to continue to give wonderful promises to the church, but when tough times come, it's going to take faith to believe those promises and to carry through on those promises. And since promises don't automatically happen, just as they, you know, Joshua didn't automatically get the land put into his lap, he had to take it. It took endurance. The same is true of us. We need endurance added to faith. And the application is that if we want to see God's promises fulfilled in our own generation, we must have faith that does not waver based on what we see in the newspapers around us. And secondly, we must have endurance to keep pressing the claims of King Jesus in our culture. Without faith and endurance, then we're disqualified as a church. That's what happened to the church in the wilderness they were wandering for 40 years because they didn't have the faith and the endurance to take possession of Canaan. They wandered for 40 years. But let me conclude by saying that though lack of faith and endurance can make us lose out on earth, our eternal security rests not in what we do, 
praise God, it does not rest in what we do. It doesn't even rest in our endurance or our faith. Okay, It rests in God's decrees before the foundation of the world. Verse 8 hints at that when it speaks of those whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slaughtered from the foundation of the world. They and only they will perish, the ones whose names have not been so written. But if you are one of those for whom Christ died, if you are one of those who is written in the book, then no one can pluck you out of the Father's hand. You will be saved for all of eternity. Jesus affirmed, you're in that book, you're in his hand, no one can pluck you out of his hand, not even Titus. So rejoice that even though times might get tough, our security rests in something far stronger than our faith. It rests in God's eternal decrees. Predestination should actually be a doctrine that is an incredible comfort to God's saints. If God has promised salvation to his elect, he is the God who cannot lie. He cannot go back on his promise. So Romans 8 guarantees that all whom he predestined will be justified. All whom he predestined will be glorified. Not a one will be lost. All will make it to heaven. Okay, so there's no loss of salvation that goes on. Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the question that comes up. Yeah, but what if I deny him under torture? What if I deny him, you know, under the pressures? Well, we've got a test case of that, don't we? And his name was Peter. And Jesus said, you will deny me. So he's not saying, oh, you're a believer, you can't deny me. He says, no, you will deny me. And Peter said, no, 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 I'm not going to do it. No, you will deny me, but I'm going to pray for you, and when you're restored, strengthen the brethren. We need to strengthen and encourage each other. That's what the body is about. Now, we assume that if a person never gets restored, like Peter got restored, that he wasn't elect in the first place. But Paul words it this way in 2 Timothy 2, verse 13. If we are faithless... He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So even though a Titus may kill your body, he cannot kill your soul. Your salvation is secure from eternity past, when the book was written, to eternity future. Hallelujah. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that though tough times come, we can rest with an absolute assurance that if you are for us, who can be against us? Yes, they may kill our bodies but they cannot kill our soul. That uh, nothing in life, not famine, not persecution, uh, nothing in life can separate us from your love, which is in Christ Jesus. And I thank you that you warn us of uh, the dangers that, that uh, we may face. You give us a, a, a realistic appraisal that life is not all uh, roses and, and uh, sweetness. And yet, you have also guaranteed that uh, you will take us through the fire, through the waters, even if we cannot avoid those waters or avoid that fire. So be with us, your people, and help us to remain steadfast and faithful and uh, to never deny your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.